He is risen. Christ has died. Christ will come again. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Please be seated. We're going on a journey. I don't want you buckled in, but I do want you shut inside the ark. We prepared for the journey by running toward the tomb, finding the tomb empty, learning from the apostles in the early church what it means to walk the way of Jesus Christ, discovering in the proverbial wisdom God's own word to you today, discovering in the Psalms God's prayer book for you today, all blessed by the name of Jesus Christ who is Lord. And here we are at the precipice of history as a little congregation, a little flock, but not alone with a community of Christians throughout the world watching what is obviously a rising tide of evil ideas claim to have reign over this planet. And we are here to build an ark. We are here to cling together. We are here to get inside of the same box and believe we're going to survive. And that box is the word and sacraments of Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Christ. By attending to what he says, by believing in his word, by having his Bible be our way and truth and life, it doesn't matter what story on what news channel or what Flickr account comes out your way and says, be afraid, you're going to know there's a sanctuary right here at Riverside in Springfield, a place of peace, a place of hospitality, a place of good men, and a place of good women, too. We're going on a journey together, and I, I do hope you're buckled in. I don't even know that I'm going to give you what I want today out of Genesis 6 and 7. There's so much in Genesis 1 through 10. We could spend 10 years. I don't kid. Torah is Torah for a reason. So if I get a little flustered here and there today, and you see a few note cards go flying, it's because I'm trying to condense like forever, right, into, into this 30 minutes we have together here. Also, I want to then give you kind of a, a forward thinking that this is one of three, three weeks to build an ark, and this week's the bad news, Okay. This week is you got to build an ark, <laughs> right? Like something bad is coming is the story. And we don't get to the full salvation promises, the rainbow, right? Until, well, two weeks from now. So as you gear up to disciple yourself with these words, remember your law gospel dynamic. It's not about preaching structures. It's about believing God has two words he speaks to you. And one is do this. And the other one is, it's done now. Those are the two words. And when we're talking about things that feel heavy and weighty, and there's a do this involved, it's easy to remember our very true doctrine of original sin, which is that I cannot do it perfectly. So it's very easy to start kind of not liking the law because it makes you feel bad. But this is where the gospel is supposed to change us. Because... The law has no power over you. It's just the way you, you should go. But even when you don't go that way, you fall on Christ. You land on Christ. You walk under grace. You can't go far enough away to escape God's love. So since that's true, failing, making mistakes with the law, finding your carnal flesh at you, trying to take over, this is the walk. That's the temptation to get off into the thorns, 
is to listen to that voice in your head that's filled with animosity and malice and lust and greed and all these things, right? So our fight is against this. And my hope then is to inspire you as a person to see that in that fight, it will involve building an ark in your life with the word of God. That is creating a space in your life where the word of God is in your life. So that every day, whatever floods the world sends your way, you're always standing in that box of God's word. And you're certain then as a human who is in fact an R2 for the Holy Spirit enters you through baptism, inspires you to believe you as a body now are the way that God is carrying his word through this chaos around with even the power to, to say to other people, hey, you can build an ark too. Believe in Jesus now. And then from there, please understand that the ark you build is not just your body, but it's your house, it's your home. It's who you live with the space in which you're sojourning through this life, build that place for the word of God. And then I mentioned it in the announcements. Uh, the congregation is an ark. They build these buildings called sanctuaries, or they used to, uh, to look like boats upside down. So if you kind of imagine that you're on an upside down boat, you can see it in the structure. And that was on purpose. It was a recognition that you really are in a ship right now. And that ship is piloted by Jesus. We have great songs about all this, right? So to build an ark means to invest in your congregation with your heart, your mind, your time, and to speak the word of God there yourself as you hear it. And then this should bleed over really into building the ark of your neighborhood, building the ark of your township or city. Uh, if you want to talk state, that's fine. Very few people have the power to build arcs at that level. If you do, I'd love to talk to you about it. But for now, let's focus on neighborhoods and houses and families. That's what we have power over. And I want to inspire you then with this story from the word of God about this first ark that was built to believe that it has ramifications for you today in the body of Jesus Christ, who you are now a part of, who continues to build you as his ark through the word of God itself. The stories which I want you to awaken to and take home and speak in your life. Now, with all that said, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about whether or not the flood happened. There's plenty of resources for you to go find that online. The debate is an important debate in the sense that it's good for Christians to be certain of what we know. And so since God said it, we must be able to find evidence of it. And what do you know? We always can. It's the way it works. But the arguments are always against skeptical atheists. I prefer to call them Gnostics. They don't like that. But a skeptical atheists, they're just not going to believe no matter what you say. It doesn't matter what evidence you have. They've got a religion of their own, and it's, I hate Jesus. So the argument is kind of a waste of time. And if you're a Christian, then you just kind of have to believe the flood happened, or you have to recognize ah, you're really doubting the Bible, <laughs> right? That is what you're doing, is you're doubting the Bible. Those are your options. And you know what? I'll love you if you doubt your Bible as your pastor. I'll even say, you know what? You can hold that private reservation in your heart. And just don't go spreading that kind of doubt. No one needs that. You know, um, instead, hear me talk about what I believe and, and bring yourself alongside it. Why is this story here? Why does every culture in history have a flood narrative, right? Uh, why did we reject this only once we decided we were smarter than God in the Enlightenment? There's all sorts of things we could do. Let's not waste our time today. If you want resources, ask. I'll point you toward creation stuff, okay? But the other thing we really want to establish is the context immediately before the flood happens, is a little section of text that's just kind of weird. And you get some of these stories. There's whole groups of Christians that believe that before the flood, the demons, 
decided to make bodies for themselves, I don't know out of what, take on bodies, and then come and not really marry, but do things reserved for marriage with women, uh, that then led to ostentatious, strange creatures that walked about the earth and did great evil things. Man, that'd make a great movie, you know? It just sounds so cool. But it's really not in the Bible at all. And the way to explain that, the text there about the sons of God and the sons of men, in brief, ask me again if you really want the details, uh, is that the sons of God is the early church, the sons of Seth, really, who are believing the promises of the seed to be born of woman, just like we do, and the sons of Manor are the sons of Cain, uh, east of Eden, uh, beginning to form new world orders and things like this. And they, they come into relation with each other, and the Christian men decide that the pagan women are beautiful, and so they marry them, and then they fall away. And wait, that should sound like something you've heard before. And that's something I really want you to see in this text as well. There's not much new going on. Genesis 6 through 7 and 8 is kind of the same story as what comes next in 10 with Abraham. And I really hope to pull that out today. So we're going to try to do that. But put it in your head. Angels aren't involved. Just imagine that from Adam until Noah, the earth is going just like it is now. With people who were Christians having kids who aren't Christians. Because of somehow, somewhere, there's an intermarrying of the ideas. And this has a lot more to do with greed and lust than with faithfulness to God. And eventually nobody believes anymore. We're not actually there. Put yourself in this for a second right now. When this happens to Noah, he's the last Christian on earth, maybe with his wife, maybe with Methuselah. Maybe it's like one other, right? Like, like he's like the last one, right? So we're nowhere near that. We got so many Christians on this planet. We're in really good shape. I want you to see that, how bad it was for Noah. It was so corrupt that there was violence everywhere. Now, but I, I want to get to that corruption stuff, but Let's just stick with that world before, because there's other things that when you reject the flood idea, that it really happened, uh, people reject this because they then get to reject other tough ideas. Like, okay, here we go. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 5. This is uh, on page 4. Genesis chapter 5. And we're not going to read all of it, but I want you to start skimming it as soon as you get there and see what you find. Uh, this is a genealogy. It's a list of names of fathers and firstborn sons from Adam all the way down to Noah. And while genealogies can be kind of dull reading if you don't know the names, and many of the names we don't know, there's something extraordinary about this genealogy, and that's how long everybody lives. So as you go through it, you're going to see people are living 912, 910, 962 years. That's a really long time. And, and frankly, nobody today kind of really believes that unless they're a Christian or a very devout Jew, maybe a very devout Muslim. Nobody would believe such a thing because it's obviously impossible in the current environment in which we live. This can't be done. This is weird. How can, you can't even imagine. 900 years, like, when's puberty? Is it at 23? Like, it's just completely weird, right? And it is anyway, you know, right? So uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing. The easy solution is the flood changed everything. Whatever you think history and science and math mean, they were there before the flood, but, but he put like a, I don't know, he put a twist in the game, right? The light that shone once upon a time as just light hit a prism and suddenly there was a rainbow that hadn't been there before. Cows you weren't supposed to eat are now good for you. 
things like that, right? So, so there's a massive shift that's going on here. And so, yeah, whatever was going on before the flood, they just lived longer. They lived a lot longer. And that was part of why it got so bad so fast is because, you know, if you're an evil man and you die in your 80s, when you're really decrepit in your 80s, you can't get a lot done. But if you're just hitting your prime in your 80s and you got 700 years to go, you can get a lot of wickedness done, right? So that, that's kind of the idea here. Now, check this out too, though. Here's the piece that I hope, I hope you just make the jump before I tell you where we're going, okay? We're, we're, we're building towards something here. If we look at these, uh, these different names, we'll start in verse 6 with Seth, who lives to be 105 and then has Enosh. And then um, uh, he lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Right? You're going to see the same thing in the next one. Right? Enosh lives 90 years. Lives after that 150 years after his first son, then has other sons and daughters. So Kenan, 70 years, has his firstborn son. Then lives 840 years, more sons and daughters. Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Lamech, um, until he fathers Noah. It's all the same. Even Lamech, verse 30, lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, a little shorter, cut short. You know why? It was a big flood. Grandpa died. Um, Lamech entered... Uh, or, uh, Noah lived 595 years after, and sorry, I'm reading it poorly, 30. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Okay, so the key piece of all of that is that you have guys not only living 700 years to build like pyramids, okay, uh, but they're living 700 years to have multiple wives with multiple sons and multiple daughters, you can imagine how quickly the population of the earth is just going to get quite large, quite large. And they spread out, they start to war with each other. But, but the thing I want you to see, forget the war, the violence for a second, is that uh, verse 32 now says, uh, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we get kind of the same thing, but very, very different. We get when he fathers his first son, we get that story. Right? Just like before, only he fathers three sons. It's interesting. And then it's not until he's 500. Now, I'm going to kind of go ahead and, and put it together, but keep trying to give you enough pieces to see if you can see it. So here's this guy who believes in the story of Jesus that, you know, old great-great-grandpa Adam used to tell before he died. And he still believes it. And nobody else does. And there's like 7 billion people on the planet. And he's the only one that believes. He lives alone with his wife, she believes too. Uh, and they're the only people that they know that don't have any kids. He's barren, it would seem. Maybe it's him. You can argue about it. But no matter how you spin it, there is a woman who has no ability to have a child in this story. And no matter how you spin it, it's at age 500 that Noah both gets the vision, there's going to be a flood, and has his first, or maybe all three, sons. Is there things about, like, prophecies proven by a sign of a son born to a woman who shouldn't have had a son in the Bible. Has this happened? <laughs> like all over the place, right? And look, here it is. Just kind of buried though. They didn't pull it out for you. Yeah, you have to find it. So he, 
the world is broken and destroyed. Noah feels like he's alone. He has his wife, but he has no sons. God wakens him and says, you're told, you're complete. We'll, we'll get to that, I hope, this morning still. Um, but then he says, I'll give you a sign. You're going to have some sons. And then what Noah has happened is he, he sees it. Oh, look, here's how I can know I'm not crazy, and it really is going to be a flood. My wife just had three kids. I'll start building that boat, that box. And as those kids are raised around the building of the box, this is their life. These four guys who build this massive, massive box. I don't even know how. I couldn't do it. We couldn't do it today. I mean, we could with machines and cranes and things. There's a museum. Four guys. A guy with his three sons over 100 years. And at 100 years, they complete it. It says something like Japheth is... I'm uh, no, sorry, Shem is 100 years old when the rain stops. Right. So just under 100 years there. But can you see how the echo of Christ is already in history? Not just a story, but in the world. That who he is is so real that it begins to impact his life thousands of years before he came. And his life begins to look like his history. And that's still the case today, which is why, again, the church must believe that we are the ark, that the body of Christ raised from the dead is the ark, that the Lord's Supper is the ark. We must believe these things uh, because the sign of a virgin bearing his son, yeah, for the salvation of the world, it really is about Jesus Christ, not just this box and this water long ago. All right, so here we go with a little more kind of fast action through the text. We're going to jump to six five and six, and start there, uh, where it says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. We've kind of talked about that. Uh, and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Like I said, there's lots of little pieces we could get out of this, and I'm going to try to give you some of them here. So one of them is this. What does it mean that God was sorry? It's kind of a strange way to talk about God, that he was sorry. Or I think the old King James says, God repented, which is probably the most literal way to translate the meaning of the word, though it's not the most literal way to translate where the word's meaning comes from. Because the meaning of the word in Hebrew is basically, <sighs> that's what it is. To take a really deep breath because you don't like something. That's where the word repent comes from, okay? So if you can see that repentance is sort of stopping, breathing, and looking a different direction. That's repentance. That is what it is. And it comes out of this idea that any time in life, man, women, we're going to have moments where we're just like, <sighs> and the root of that movement that I just did, believe it or not, is called self-consolation, self-consoling. When you stop, you don't output, you don't input, you just, you're comforting yourself with spirit, actually, with air. Yeah. Uh, so let's take all of that now and put it into the Genesis text, okay? So God saw the man was wicked and he took a big deep breath and comforted himself and said, I can stop this. Right? It isn't as if he was like, oh, I feel so sorry, I'm really sad. 
And, oh my goodness. Like, this isn't a pity party for God. And this isn't, well, God makes mistakes, you know, so Christians are stupid, which is kind of where the skeptic goes with this. All right. Uh, no, this is, this is God like taking a really deep breath and saying, we must inject more of plan A, namely the promise of the seed born to woman. Hey, look, we'll, we'll make it happen one time uh, with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right, so from there, uh, in 6 verse 7, it says, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For here again, I am sorry that I have made them. So this is pit stop number one on animals in Noah and Genesis and in the ark. And again, there's a great museum dedicated to this. There's lots of science to show why we can do this. But I do want to give you some Hebrew zoology for the fun of it as we go. And so let's just start with, you can see it right here in the text. The way they think of animals isn't the way we do. If I had to have you list three types of animals that all animals fit under, right? We'd go somewhere with like mammal, reptile, and what? If you can't use fish and birds, what else do you add? If you said one that's good for you, I wasn't listening well enough. But the point is to say that our system of thinking of animals is all based on taxonomy. That is the study of the inside of the animal. And the Hebrew animals are based upon the study of the outside of the animal and how it relates to you. And so here you see there are three big categories. Um, uh, it calls them uh, man and animals. That's one category is animals, which is separate from creeping things. And that's separate from birds. Well, those are the three big categories, right? Animals, which the word just means living, living stuffs. Um, and then those are different than creeping things, which can be a mouse, can be a lizard, can be a uh, tarantula. Right? Those are all creeping things. Um, and that's different from the birds. Birds are pretty easy to tell the difference, right? They, they live in heaven. I mean, the sky, right? That's Hebrew zoology, kind of short burst from that text. More coming as we ask two by two and seven by seven or with seven as we go. But let's look at verse eight now, where it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord or in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Favor, the word's Cain, it is, uh, it is the word grace. I've talked to you about kesed before, which is often translated as steadfast love and can mean grace or carries the idea of grace. But the word Cain here, favor, really means like pure grace. Like God just looks on Noah with mercy. So whatever's going to come next about how good Noah was, uh, it isn't why God does what God does. God does what God does because God is gracious. And in his grace, he looks at Noah and sees that in spite of Noah's very real sin, Noah still believes the promises, right? Which is not his work, but God's work upon Noah. So that idea of grace, just see that that's right here at the start. Salvation in Torah is by grace through faith, right? All right, so in verse nine then, we have this bit about the generations of Noah. Let's leave that for another day and just look at where it does say, no, he found grace. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So we've set up running toward the tomb. We've set up the way, the truth, and the life. The idea of the walk with God is a massive biblical metaphor for your Christian faith. And it starts right here. Well, it started with Enoch, 
but now Noah and he is the second who walks with God. And what's really nice is it defines walk with God here with what's around it. It tells you that he, you, to walk with God, you are going to be righteous, right? And you are also going to be blameless in your generation. Now, you can come at that with a real legalistic lens and say, well, no one can do that. And on judgment day, if you're trying to be justified by your works, you would be right. No one can do that. But that's not what the text is saying. It's saying Noah did it. So it's not talking about justification by works on the last day. It's talking about something else. And righteousness, which means accuracy, is really a, a word that ultimately is about having innocence before God given to you. Our word justification is the same word. So you can just read this as Noah was justified. And since you know that's by grace through faith, it has to be by grace through faith. There's no other way. It doesn't say other ways, so let the New Testament be your standard. So Noah was justified by his religion, trusting in Jesus. And then he was, that word complete, perfect, it's complete, it's whole. It doesn't mean perfect like I get 10 out of 10 and I rocked that test. It's more like, um, no, you can't take away my favorite color from me, no matter what you do. It's my favorite color. You can't change that, right? That's whole, that's who I am, right? That's wholeness. So Noah was justified. And then amongst the corruption of his generation, he was a whole man. He, he was a good man. Nobody would have pointed at Noah and said, get that guy away from me, right? because he was a good man. That, that's all that means, and that's all we should aspire to be then. Huh? Good people. Not to please God, not to earn from God, but because of who our God is. We reflect him. We have a good God. He's shown his light on us, right? How can we not then also shine? Uh, the word corrupt in verse 11 and 12, we won't, I won't go there directly, is an interesting one to put in your modern day uh, kind of overlapping vocabulary because it has a, a cognate in Arabic um, and the word is Hamas. Uh, Hamas, uh, you've heard that word probably in the news. Uh, in Hebrew, it means corrupt, cruel, or malicious. Uh, well, that's interesting. Why would you name your group that? Um, but uh, with regard to what Genesis is saying, uh, it's saying everybody's like that. At the days of Noah, everybody was like that. Everyone's just cruel. Everyone's trying to get their own. Everyone's more worried about saving a little money. Right? And they're willing to overlook violence in order to do it. Verse 13 and 14, God says, build an ark. Ark just means box. It's a strange word. It means box. The boat was a big box. Uh, you know, they hadn't really maybe made boats before this, right? How did he design it and all that? Uh, God says, do it. Uh, types of wood, how it's done. That's what the, the museums are for, okay? But then let's scoot down to verse 18, where he says that I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, the box, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. Covenant. Um, uh, this is a word that means something more than commitment. Uh, I'm actually going to go and look at this one because I think it's that important. Um, it's, I love this. It's like an alliance, right? A pledge, an oath. And the root word in ancient Akkadian that predates, predates Hebrew is their word for fetter, which is like a clamp, right? So God says, I'm going to make a fetter on you. I'm going to clamp you. I'm going to make an alliance with you. Please understand that when you get the Lord's Supper today, he's saying it to you. 
I'm making an alliance with you today. Today is your day of salvation. Today I enter your ark to save you. Yeah. The covenant of God's promises is why the church survives everything that comes our way. It's not our structures, our hierarchies, our programs, or even our tithes and our offerings. It is the pilot who is at the head of our ship who has allied himself with us to carry our baggage all the way. And the proof of that fact is not his virgin birth, but his resurrection from the dead after we nailed him to the cross. I will make my covenant with you. Build an ark. We're out of time. There's so much more. Windows and fountains from heaven and the number 40 and shutting him into a graceful place, all of this. But I want to refresh as we're taking steps over the next couple of weeks. I'm asking you to build your ark. I honestly have no idea what that means to you. I know what it means to me. I'll tell you. It means I'm going to put everything I have into my house, my neighborhood, and people who live around me, which then includes this little retreat center that I'm trying to develop. And I'd love to tell you privately about it. I don't do it a lot publicly at St. Paul. Always happy to talk privately about the Hebrew Collegium. Uh, and then, well, this is my ark. I'm building this. I really want your help. Now, my son is, I got one. I don't have three. And he's still too young to heavy stuff, Right? So I want you to build this ark. So I I know this is your ark, but when you go home, what's your ark there? Who needs to get on board the ark? What do you need to build against? Who do you have to stop listening to because they're scoffing at you? And your your measure, your medium, your boundary is always the text of the word of God. And your certainty is that God has surely said, take and eat. I make an alliance with you today. In the name of Jesus, amen.